Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Carl Weinberg is with us. He writes for High Frequency Economics and has written a separate note on China for a good number of years as well. I think Lisa's point is a foundational Monday conversation, which is, is, does a guy like you look at economic growth dynamics or do you look separately at inflation dynamics when you link the central bank into all this? Well, I think at the moment, the central bank is focused on the financial system and on the economy. There's no doubt about it. And that's what uh, Fed Chair Powell told us on um, uh, on Friday in a statement that was remarkably similar to Alan Greenspan's statement in 1987 when the stock market took a huge tumble downward, you know, saying, signaling to everybody, you know, we're here for the economy. We're here for the financial system. We see what's going on and we'll do what's appropriate. The Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index made by Michael Rosenberg and his team is the legendary Michael Rosenberg is really, really important. Two weeks after it came out, the IMF picked it up. And it's a drama chart right now, like everything else, moving from optimism down to 1.5 standard deviations. It's nowhere near where we were in 07, 08. Carl, what strikes me is just how quickly the story has changed. A couple of weeks ago, if you asked people about the March Fed meeting, they might say that's a little bit too early. A couple of weeks later, and we sit here this Monday morning, you ask them about the March 18th meeting, and some people say that's too late, they've got to wait before. What's your base case, not on what they should, shouldn't do, but on they, what they will, won't do? Well, I think what they will do is they will address liquidity needs immediately as they come up. If we, Again, if we flash back to 1987, the Fed suspended all thoughts of its Fed funds rate during the days immediately after the stock market crash. They just said, whatever you need, we'll give it to you, we'll figure out a price later, and we're just going to put the money on the table for the financial system to take it. That's the kind of action that I think is immediately required. Even without a rate change, the point is that the money is there and the money is cheap and the money is without conditions. Let me interrupt. Just published moments ago from Strategus Research, Donald Rissmiller, China GDP could be negative 5%. Q1 is another expert framing China. Yeah. Just just to drop in on that one, you know, the PMI certainly indicates trouble in China. And as Lisa pointed out, we expected that bad a number or a bad number like that. But that PMI only has a correlation of about 0.3 between starting in 2014 to present. So it may very well overstate or not give us a clear picture on how bad it is. In its whole history, it has a correlation of 0.7. But since 2014, it's done a lousy job predicting the levels. Weinberg with the correlations this morning. <laughs> I want to go to Did the idea idea of what kind of monetary policy response really will help the matter at this point. You said uh, provide liquidity to the financial system. Back in 2008, where many people are drawing comparisons, it was a financial system-driven problem, a liquidity problem. We are seeing a very different reality this time, an economic issue, and the banks seem to be in very solid shape, plenty of reserves. What do you say to people who argue that if you drop rates to zero here, that could arguably hurt the financial system more than help going forward. Oh, I agree with you, Lisa. You know, I think that from the actual nuts and bolts of making the economy go, all right, the interest rate is irrelevant right now. All right, this is all about liquidity. All right, this is all about save the banks, save the economy, save the financial system, save the economy. But the banks aren't about to go under. They're not, but people think that they are. Okay, so the idea of providing confidence to the people. You think they do, Carl? Who Hmm? thinks that this morning? Hmm? Who thinks the banks are going under this morning? Well, people are concerned about financial conditions. 
politicians. They're concerned about the crash in the stock market. People are waking up to margin calls that they didn't have a week sure, ago. Sure, but I haven't heard anyone say the banks are going under. Well, that's true. But the job of the Fed is to stabilize the financial system, whether it's banks going under or banks getting in trouble or companies getting in trouble, all right, or investors getting in trouble and bringing down parts of the banking system. Just remember, Jonathan, that if we go back to 2008, we all saw the big crash in the housing market coming, but nobody thought through the financial implications. And as Lisa says, when something breaks, something gets this far away from normal, things tend to break. I think you said that before, and I agree with that. Yeah, I did. I just want to be clear, and I don't think you're fear-mongering, just in case some of our listeners hear words like people think I the banks are going under. I thought we booked fear-monger. I don't think many people think the banks <laughs> no, are going under. But, but it raises a really interesting question, John, because so many of the assets and the lending function has shifted from big banks to some of these investors that are getting margin calls. So my question is, the banks are fine. They have more reserves than they know what to do with. Uh, the question is, what about everyone else? And what can the Fed really do in a systematic way to address potential issues uh, that they may be feeling? Yeah. And let's just take this back to China, which is the, the starting point for all of this. All right, Households in China haven't been getting paychecks now for three or four weeks. Businesses haven't been taking in revenues. If businesses, of, of customers of banks fell, as Lisa points out, then the banks will have trouble. And if banks in China have trouble, how does that affect our financial system? We don't know because we've never seen this before. These are valid points. So it raises the question, what can you do outside of monetary policy? So Italy, the likes of the Italians <coughs> over the weekend doing some things with tax credits to help those companies that are suffering, otherwise viable businesses that are just going through some pain right now. What can Congress do if this gets worse in America? Well, right now, I don't think this Congress can do anything. To be honest with you, that's a political question, I think, rather than an economic question. You know, I, I don't really see the two houses of Congress coming together before election to get together on, on anything. Um, and that's just a political judgment on my part. What should they do? Again, the government should be, this is a supply shock. So the government should be looking at ways to encourage companies to diversify supply chains, to get substitute supply chains, to bridge companies through gaps in production when they can't get a part to make the assembly line go. Yeah. I think that's where they can step in. You have so much experience and when things unravel for EM. Should we have our radar up? and that the challenge won't be a major country or a major central bank, and that the challenge will be a given nation will unravel? Well, I just look at commodity producers, whether they're advanced economies like Canada and Australia, which, by the way, both of which are likely to cut rates this week for macroeconomic reasons associated with the same shock. All right, But commodity prices are down by double digits. Oil prices, you've talked about this a lot on the air. Oil prices, Brent, at $50 a barrel. Yeah. These are the kinds of things that break emerging market yeah. economies. This has been wonderful. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much for joining us with High Frequency Economics. Uh, really can't say enough about the research linking and fixed income across all of this. With us now, Terry Haynes of Pangea Policy. We get a huge feedback when he's on because he's very direct about the political realities as they link into uh, Washington. Terry, I want to go to the terrific work redone by Pew Research over the weekend on the Latino vote and the idea that even in a state like Indiana, the Latino vote is tangible and health care is the number one issue. Is Bernie Sanders a one policy candidate? Is it simply his assent is about health care? Uh, no, I think that's uh, that's not quite it. That plays into it, Tom. Uh, but his ascent has to do with, the, the, I think, a very simple fact, which is that uh, 70 to 80 percent of Democratic primary voters, the most motivated people out there, people who talk about Democratic politics like you talk about the New York Rangers, are people who are progressives. 
and Sanders has been out there uh, for four years plus, and he's got uh, he's got money, he's got an organization, and he's got a lot of commitment, and that's uh, that's been enough to buoy him and ballast him through uh, these early primaries, and that'll continue. I think healthcare is a part of that, though. Yes, absolutely. Terry, let's fold the stories of the moment into the political story, shall we? What we're seeing in the economy and at the epicenter of that, the scare around the coronavirus. This is from Goldman. If the coronavirus epidemic <laughs> materially affects U.S. economic growth, it may increase the likelihood of Democratic victory in the 2020 election. In contrast with the prevailing market narrative, head-to-head polls show Senator Sanders would be competitive against President Trump in the general election. Does that resonate with you, Terry, or do you push back? Uh, all due respect to my Goldman friends, uh, I will push back. Uh, I, I think they're on to something. There's certainly uh, there's a great deal more uncertainty, like my old friend Ed Hyman of uh, Evercore, as I mentioned, uh, over the weekend. But I don't think that redounds automatically to Sanders' benefit. What you have in a Sanders-Trump general election fundamentally is – Trump pounding away at the economy, but also pounding away at the ways that Sanders would want to change the economy in a very blunderbuss fashion. And, uh, and, and Sanders you know, doesn't really want to counter that. He wants to double down on it. Well, uh, you know, it strikes me as a Johnson versus Goldwater sort of election, even with the coronavirus. Terry, to build on what John was talking about, let's take a step back and not just put uh, Sanders versus President Trump. But in general, does the spread of the coronavirus and questions about the response put President Trump in a weaker or a stronger position to win re-election? Uh, you know, I'm not shy about taking a position, but right now I'm going to demur a little bit. Uh, it, we're not quite we're not quite at the point where we know that it's either they're on top of it and in front of it, or whether this is uh, apologies to Bush 43, the, uh, the kind of the great job brownie moment uh, where they're about to get overwhelmed uh, and inundated. Uh, you know, and and that's the fulcrum yeah. upon which the, the that answer really depends. Uh, so far, right now, they seem to be doing okay. Terry, I'm depressed because you and I are the only ones in this studio, in the control room, or listening worldwide who know what Johnson Goldwater was. I mean, <laughs> it's very depressive. But come on, there was that ad about Barry Goldwater, the uh, atomic bomb television ad, and AUH2O went down in flames. Great. It's changed now. We're so much more sophisticated and so much more visible. Can the Democrats, whoever wins, put together a cogent ad message so they can defend and not be the Barry Goldwater of 2020? Oh, sure. But it depends a great deal on who that nominee is. You know, I've been telling people for nine months to a year that I think that if if the nominee is Biden, I think uh, Biden can beat Trump. I think Democrats generally can be competitive. Yeah. The big problem for there are two problems with Sanders. One is that uh, he, he, other than his own followers, he depresses turnout. So a lot of people will just uh, swing voters will just yeah. turn away from Sanders. Yeah, that was certainly. What and we the saw. other problem really is that you have uh, down ballot problems where the, the, the prospect of losing significantly in the Senate and the House are also very real. Oh, that'll be a theme for Wednesday morning, no doubt about that. Maybe we'll speak to you then. Terry Haynes with Pangea Policy. Michael Shul is just wonderful. Dr. Shul, not only with his expertise in accounting and finance, but also with market field asset management, thinking broadly about the market. Michael, can you acquire shares this morning? 
I mean, you can. I don't know if you'll make money. Um, I mean, I, joking apart, I, I, you know, I, I do think that that Friday's low is, you know, at least we have support to talk about. You, you know, the Nasdaq 100 bounced off the 200-day, the S&P bounced in the 2870. So, you know, I think that that is support, and if that support holds, then I think, <laughs> right. um, you know, I think that there are signs that the you know, maybe the worst of the first wave is behind us. What ratio is most important to you in deciding what to buy within the equity markets? What's the the character where you'll say, you know, this looks like in a special value now? Um, you know, I, I think I at these times look for things that you would have expected to go down more and haven't gone down. You know, I, I think China's local market is, of course, a standout. I mean, it's you know, that, that is the country which has still been most affected by this. And yet, if you look at a chart of the Shanghai A, it looks volatile, but it looks normally volatile. I mean, apart from that one day shocking decline, the overall picture, you haven't, you haven't broken that market yet. You know, I would look at a sector domestically that, um, you know, is a few steps away from the problem. I think home building kind of stands out where, where we have a lot of very good internal housing data that, that, that tells us that the end of last year, beginning of this year, really was a strong period for, for the new home market. And, you know, unless you believe that we're heading for a domestic recession in the United States, you know, it's a few steps away from the chaos. It's a long way away from being an airline. Michael, let's talk about developing a strategy to come back into the market, the kind of things you mm-hmm. need to look for. If you have a long time horizon at this point, for our listeners listening to the program, what's your best guide for them on deploying some capital into a market as volatile as this one, but just picking your moments, picking your spots? Yeah, I think you have to just hold your nose and do it. I don't, I don't think it's going to be obvious. You know, when this is over, it will be obvious, but it, it'll be very difficult to get involved, you know, to get involved at that point. I yeah. think what you're looking for now are... are cyclical portions of cyclicality that that aren't behaving as badly as you might have expected. Again, the last couple of days of last week were interesting because it was the defensive sectors really getting, you know, really getting liquidated. So I think that's something we'd look for. And you need, you know, you either need support to hold or it needs to break, but bounce back extremely quickly. Either one of those is fine. Michael, what would you have to see to rethink your thesis that it would be a good buying opportunity at some point? Um, you know, I, I, the, the disease itself is not particularly worrisome. It's more the, the attempt to halt the disease. Uh, you know, I think that, that it certainly is possible that the sort of coordinated action to contain the disease causes enough distress economically. And what I would call permanent distress. You know, I don't, you don't really worry about a corporation missing its quarter's earnings or maybe even next quarter's earnings as long as you can see that it's transient. I think it's the number of companies that actually go bust. I think it's the number of employees that are actually fired and not refired. You know, that, that, that really matter. I think markets can be patient with, with, you know, a deep effect from, you know, that, that comes and goes over a period of weeks or months. But, but yeah. you know, if you start to see corporate bankruptcies tot up, it's difficult. It's right. more difficult to come back from that. And Michael, Lisa's been talking about economic growth all morning. We have a stunning headline out from our Ira Jersey, who's running our fixed income shop. And this is just a what if. All Treasury yields seen sub 1% in a coronavirus recession. Now, first of all, folks, you got to get there. We're not there yet. We're clearly not 1% sub for all Treasury yields. What does that signal, Michael, to have all yields under 1% if we get there? I mean, we've never seen that in our lifetimes. What does it signal? 
Well, I mean, we haven't seen it in the U.S. We have seen it, obviously, in other parts of the world. I, I mean, I, I believe it signals that, that that's the one market which has made people money, and that, that's where everybody's crowding. I, I, but one thing I'm very resistant to is the idea that the bond market is more intelligent than other, you know, than other portions of, of financial markets. It's just as prone to the stresses caused by momentum and, and extreme moves as other parts of the market. And you know, we, what, what we are certainly witnessing. Is a, is a frantic attempt to try and discount, you know, the, the immediate moves of the Federal Reserve and a, and a reaction to, you know, multi-standard deviation moves, moves that we saw, you know, you know that we saw over the course of last week. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you could go back to a year like 2009, where, of course, Treasury yields collapsed to levels which we thought were unbelievable at the time. Obviously, obviously those levels are higher than where we are today. You know, the recovery from 2009 was one of the ugliest multi-month periods for the bond market. Nobody really cared because they were making so much in other assets. But, but the bond market, you know, has historically overreacted to times like these and then, well, had, to, then had to pay the price later on. And Michael, this really uh, implicit in that is the fact that perhaps you believe that bonds are severely overbought right now and could be due for a reversal with yields rising much more. Is that correct? I mean, if it isn't the end of the world and we're not facing a deep recession, then yes, I, I think that, that Treasury yields, where they are, are you know are likely to move significantly higher over a period of over a period of weeks or months. But I but I understand how we get here. You know, I understand that the Federal Reserve is under pressure to act and might and might and uh, you know and might well act. And I understand that the long end of the curve has been literally the only part of people's portfolios which has been able to protect them while they're being long. So you know, there's some sense to what happened. That doesn't mean that we're that we're in a new, you know that we're in a new, you know, permanent state of affairs where where we're going to look at the tenure at one and think it's normal. I think it's abnormal, and I think we'll look back on it and wonder how we actually got there. I look forward to that conversation with you in the future, Michael. Always great to get your thoughts, Michael Shaw. There, wonderful, Michael Field, Asset Management. Right now, what we've really tried to do is John and I sat down and we just said, we've got to get the best in medicine. We had Paul Kelman with us earlier this morning from Imperial College, truly first-rate, world-class in the genome, the RNA of viruses. And now we speak to a fabulous virologist, Jennifer Rohn, out of Oberlin and the acclaimed program at the University of Washington and at UCL in London. She's done important virus work and particularly across species, including cats as well. Well, Jennifer, what does the media most get wrong about the fear out there, the the masks, the droplets in the air? What do we most get wrong? I guess that uh, masks seem very um, comforting, and we see a lot of them uh, being worn here in London, especially on public transport. And, and they will indeed block the larger droplets of a sneeze or a cough, but they really aren't great protection overall. Viruses can get through these masks. They can get into your eyes. And a lot of people fiddle with their masks. They don't use them properly. They're not, they don't fit properly. And, and, and it gives you a false sense of security in, in a way. And what you really need to be doing is washing your hands and not touching your face so much. Dr. Rohn, from an economic point of view, there's a huge fear that the fear of coronavirus will keep people home and bring commerce and all things trade to a halt. From a medical perspective, what's the big fear here? I, it's a really difficult one. I mean, what China did with their lockdown was undoubtedly quite effective. I mean, it still escaped, but it, it kept it under control. And you could argue that closing schools and stopping travel will help. But
But I'm personally, I think that the cat is a bit out of the bag now. This thing is spreading, and I don't know how much intervention would be sensible at this point. Jennifer, have you seen enough community transmission or at least evidence of community transmission in the United States now to say that any kind of travel curves would be ineffective? Well, well, what's been happening in the Pacific Northwest has been quite interesting. You know, it looks as if it's been spreading in this suburb of Seattle for, for perhaps weeks. And, and I think as more and more people are tested, we will, we will under, uncover more evidence of person-to-person spread. People have not had contact with anyone who's traveled to any of these hotspot countries. Why has testing for this particular virus been so difficult? Well, there's been a few problems with the one that the CDC was producing. Um, you know, it's a brand new virus. <laughs> Uh, usually test kits are highly tested over a number of uh, months. This had to be rushed out quite quickly. I think basically it could be the fact that people just feel they can't afford the testing in countries where there isn't a, a national health service. Here in London, here in the UK, people will get tested. Uh, in the United States, I think it might be more difficult. And Dr. Rohn, what is the mortality rate at this point uh, that the, the virus has been shown to have? It's, it is fluctuating as more and more data come in. Uh, it's anywhere between 0.1% and about 2%. And I know this isn't a very reassuring thing to hear, but it is a moving target at the moment. Even if it is 0.1%, the lowest uh, of the estimates, that's still more than seasonal flu. So um, we don't know the exact numbers yet because we don't know the exact right. numbers of people who are infected and don't have symptoms. How many cases do you need or deaths do you need to get a better handle on what the virulency is? Are you like days away from getting a better knowledge of, of, of Lisa's good question or is it weeks away? I think we're looking at weeks. The other thing about mortality rate to take into account is it depends on your health structure, your health care infrastructure. So if you're, you're in a hospital that's overwhelmed, for example, in Hubei, your death rate might be higher than if you're you know, in, a, in a, a lovely sort of intensive care in a, in a place like London where there's only a few patients and everyone's getting the best possible care. Yeah. So that mortality rate is not fixed in stone. It really depends on how the healthcare system responds. So we don't know how many people are infected and it, it probably will take weeks, if not months, to sort out these numbers. Dr. Ron, thank you so much for uh, being with Bloomberg Surveillance a number of times through this crisis. Dr. Ron at UCL in London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.